Hospitality Meets is brought to you by Rotacloud, the staff scheduling app for hospitality teams. Rotacloud lets you create and share rotas, record attendance, and manage your team's annual leave, all in less time than it takes to make a brew. It can also make life easier for your staff, allowing them to check their rotas, request holiday, and even pick up extra shifts, all through the Rotacloud mobile app. Start your 30-day free trial today by visiting rotacloud.com forward slash fill and find out how much easier managing your team can be. Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Alison Cullen-Woodcock, food development and equipment consultant and all-round industry live wire. Coming up on today's show... Alison goes into shipbuilding. We actually did a rebuild of the Titanic. Phil gives us the standard format for the show. This has gone downhill quite quickly, hasn't it? And Alison dishes out some key advice. Never, ever, ever advise anybody to do that, ever, ever, and never do that ever again. All that and so much more as Alison chats us through her magnificent story so far in a side of the industry that you might not have even considered. A huge thank you to her for really bringing the thunder. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please don't forget to give us a subscribe, a like and a share across your favourite social channels. Enjoy! And a huge hospitality meets welcome to Alison Cullen Woodcock. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah, well, 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 well said. Yes. There's a bit of a long history on this show of me just going, and welcome to the show, this person who I've not practised their name. <laughs> yeah, you get a gold star from the, from the, from the, from the get go, definitely. Good stuff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yes, I just thought I'd better shut the door because uh, we have a cocker spaniel in the kitchen. And if she hears noises and voices that she's not familiar with, she might decide she wants to take part. So ah. just being, uh, yes, cautious of the obvious. Yes, the dogs in our lives like doing that, don't you? I have to keep my door shut as well because my uh, we have a beagle and she will uh, be quite happy to lay low for the rest of the day unless I'm on a phone call or a video call or something where she feels, oh, he's talking, there's energy, I must be involved. Yes, yes. All dogs have FOMO, big style. And yeah. I think as they get older, it gets worse. So ours is no different. So, um, so no, she's safely tucked in the kitchen. So we should be good. <laughs> Wonderful. So, uh, yeah, just tell the world uh, who you are and what you do. Okay, so um, my name is Alison Cullen Woodcock, as you correctly assumed. Um, I run my own business called Clifton Food Service Consultants Limited. Um, and basically, um, I try and help other businesses through the minefield of new menu development. It might be equipment choices, it might be packaging challenges in the current sustainable world that we live in, um, or anything else I get asked to help with, to be honest. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough, having sort of been a chef for a, a number of years now, that uh, I've got a little background there to help me with uh, most of the answers that people are, tr- are searching for. So mm. that, that's basically it. Yeah, and well, and I, I have to thank you because you very kindly reached out and um, and not only reached out, but you you were persistent. Let's put it that way, uh, in a, in the right possible way, because you felt that your your story might have some some value and actually when we started talking and I learned a little bit more about the world in which you have operated again another side of the industry that I hadn't even contemplated um so beyond your world as a chef and we'll get into this of course as we get through your story there's there's a wonderful side of the industry which is so important but probably never gets really spoken about mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about all of the people as consumers, we go out and we eat as a guest. We eat in hotels, we eat in restaurants, we eat on cruise ships, we we QSR restaurants, quick service restaurants. You know, every category we just um, eat. has, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and yet we don't actually think about, as a consumer, we really don't think about how that food got there. Mm. So having listened to, oh, I think about 150 of your podcast now. Well, you're getting there. You're getting there. Yeah, I think, we I think when we last I am spoke, doing it in reverse. So you were way bit, yeah, back. yeah. No, no. Absolutely. <laughs> top um, effort. I actually thought, actually, you know what? Nobody talks about equipment innovation. Nobody talks about food innovation that goes along with equipment development. And as a chef and an operator, the two have to go hand in hand. You have to make solid equipment decisions, but they also have to go in line with your menu and, and beverage choices. So when you go out to eat, you you know your your choices are endless. Your equipment choices are all equally as vast. But actually, having that decision making experience to be able to help customers through that process is really what's sort of given me this uh, a whole new track that nobody else has done which which has been fascinating and i will be forever grateful because yeah. it's not often in your career you get to write your own job description twice um oh, and that. and that's you know that is unique and and i've had some amazing experiences along the way so some of which we're going to chat about this afternoon which yeah, I'm really well, looking I, I, I think we've definitely given enough teasers have we not to anybody who's who's still with us four minutes in uh <laughs> wherever we're at so yeah, and and actually, the, the, I was when we spoke and we talked a little bit about your journey before and and all of that kind of thing. And you you came up with, I mean, it's not even coming up with. You can't make half of this stuff up. The the story that you gave me, I was like, oh my god. I mean, I'm in hook, line, and sinker. So we'll get to that in the fullness of this discussion, I am sure. But before we do, let's just go all the way back to the very beginning of mm. uh, and that age old question: How did you get into this industry in the first place? Mm. Well, like the ninety-one percent of your other guests, I have you actually have you did... done the stats on that? Have you yeah. almost? Yeah, really? um, I <laughs> I actually knew what I wanted to do, right. and, and oh, I wow. was I was right there. Yeah. So at school, I wasn't particularly academic, as my parents poor poor parents will testify, and so but I did like I did like doing home economics, and I did even though my teacher told me I was terrible. And I would never make it professionally. Yeah. Um, I loved her and I loved what we were doing every week. So academically, I wasn't fantastic. So when I got to leave school, I thought to myself, all my friends, literally everybody was going to stay on and do A-levels. And I thought, actually, I, I really don't want to. I've, I have managed to secure myself three college places. And, and so I, I knew I wanted to go to college. But prior to that, I think that the driver was we'd actually been to see a family friend in Windsor and this family friend worked at Windsor Castle and he was a, um, a, a valet or a butler and he would basically serve the royal family. And we went there and I don't ask, don't ask me what this, what this gentleman had actually cooked, but it was a rice salad and it had the most amazing dressing on it. And I remember saying to my sister, I want to be able to make rice salad with dressing like this I want to make this and I don't know what it was I don't know what I did it was probably nothing more than a than a fancy expensive vinaigrette but yeah. it was amazing and it had that sort of moment of crystallization when you think 
goodness, that's something really amazing. And that's made an impact on me at 14. So yeah. I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And quite, and quite <laughs> well, I, and well played. And uh, congratulations. Thanks very much for coming on the show. That was, yeah. <laughs> Bye. Um, yeah. But um, what I find actually quite remarkable about that as well is, is that, that your palate mm. was pronounced enough at that age to, you know, I suppose identify the fact that, oh, this, from all of the other rice salads I've had in my life, this has got something different. Yeah. Because I definitely don't, my palate didn't come alive, I think, probably until I, I forced it awake in, in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? it mm. It's just those little things that make you wake up and go, oh, my goodness, that was something special. I mean, I'll credit my, my parents. My mum has always been a really good cook, has always, you know, really pushed the boat out. I remember my my 16th birthday, we had a Japanese pyjama party and we went shopping for Japanese did. ingredients. Right. Wow. Okay. So so we would and she would cook and she would be adventurous and we would, you know, do different stuff. So, you know, I credit her with that early palate testing, I suppose. Yeah. Um, because that that wouldn't have happened, I don't think, without those sort of new experiences. My dad used to travel a lot. So I'd be always the person saying to him, where did you go? What did you have? What did they feed you on the aircraft? You know, what did you have for dinner last night? You know, I'd, poor guy, I'd quiz him every every day. Yeah. Um, Can I hug my parents, wife first, please? <laughs> no, I know, I know. My poor parents, when I just started cookery at school, you know, like most parents, they'd be getting the take, they would be getting the leftovers coming home on my bike, you know, with whatever we'd cooked that week. So God knows, you know, might have been liver and onions on a Wednesday or something, but it was always something, you couldn't ever put it on a bike and cycle home with it, could you? Because Tupperware didn't really exist this that long ago. Right. So it was always, anyway, whatever. So moving on from that, um, <laughs> that was the, um, that was the crystallizing moment I'm going to college. And so I just decided I'd, I'd look around and see what colleges were open to me that, that did, did a catering course. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to go and secure a place at West, Westminster. I also managed to secure a place at Cassio College, which is now West Hearts. And also there was, um, there was a college at Letchworth as well. So I had three offers. I would love to have gone to Westminster, but it was just too far from where I lived in, in right. St. Albans. And so I actually decided I would go to, to Cassio, to West Hearts. And um, yeah, so two buses every day or a bus and a coach and um, college two years. And that was that. So I did the city and guilds. And right. so it was, it was, I think, the, definitely the right thing to do. Even though I, I do remember being told at school, basically, there was only two of us that left to go to, to, go to college. Mm. Um, and, and everybody else, obviously, was staying on. So, obviously, the two of us were, you know, a couple of dropout girls. Dropouts, and that's that, yeah. It's so know. bad, isn't it? It's so bad. That, that <laughs> that's, I think even to this day, it's still the message. Yeah. Um, and yet we're all, we're all different. We're all, you know, some of us, I suppose, are forced into academic because people think, well, they're intelligent, so they should be doing academia. But the yeah. the intelligence comes in so many different forms. Yes. And I had, I had a very similar situation. I didn't become a chef, but I had a very similar situation to you in your home ec class. My home ec teacher said to me that I would never do anything with food and drink. And I was like, ah, but I love it. I yeah. enjoy doing it. You know, it doesn't. Yeah. I can't get it perfectly right the first time I do it, but I, I'm willing to learn. Yeah. So yeah, it just shows you the importance of the messages that we get sent when we're yeah. impressionable, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
so so going to college I think was the best thing I did for those two years so did my sitting guilds because thought well I can I can be qualified in the two years it's going to take my friends to get a levels that I don't need yeah. and then I can go off and get a job earn some money and and get going so that that was that it wasn't difficult and I absolutely loved college Right. Um, I'm, I'm still in, in touch with friends that are, you know, still in, not in the industry, obviously, but, you know, still in touch with the college friends and, you know, it really was a, a wake up. I think, I think the, the ratio of girls to boys was, was probably 70 boys, 30 girls, right. which I don't know what it's like now, but, um, I wouldn't imagine it's drastically different. And so when I qualified and did my 706 one, 706, 707, 717 for the for the two years absolutely loved it and then obviously went out and got my first job but in between times I've done some Saturday jobs um as you do because you still need money to for everything else when you're that age um so I'd worked at British home stores in St Albans and I was in their staff restaurant on a Saturday doing toast for 70 people right Try not to burn the place down somewhere (laughs) exactly and then my second uh, Saturday job was Water and Barn, which is still there, I think, in St Albans. And I was a waitress. And the key thing was uh, learning to multitask. Remember how many ta- tables you had and remembering how many orders you would have for coffee and tea cakes on a Saturday morning when there was probably 160 tables in this restaurant. Mm. Um, and there'd probably be, I don't know, 20, 20 of us. But it was it was multitasking and, and running at its finest so, yes, so that was yeah. fabulous. But also, <laughs> I, I suppose the, the great thing about that, I, I think, from the outside looking in, is that, you know, yes, okay, you're, you're kind of making your way and your path is now beginning to carve itself out as a chef because you know, that's what you're getting yourself qualified in. Mm. But actually taking the front of house job as well, I mean, I, you know, must really, really enhance your kind of overall understanding of how this is all interlinked together yeah absolutely and I and I think one of the reasons that I did the city and guilds and the 706 rather than the doing the what I think a good had done was the OND at that stage was I I didn't although I had the qualifications to do the the, the higher the higher course or the, the the more management style course the the last thing I wanted to do from my perspective at that early age was to not be able to know the basics so to have to then ask somebody how to do a basic task, how to do a basic job. And so I thought, okay, well, if I do two years of craft and I do two years of kitchen in front of house, then I will then have a solid understanding to then, you know, build on from a future perspective in terms of management training. And I I was thinking at the time, I'm sure in the future I can do some management training courses at some point. I'm sure somebody would put me on that. So I thought the last thing I want to do is to be that person who has to ask because she doesn't know. So I'm going to u- learn the basics first and then I'll just build on it. And so I think for from a an educational standpoint, actually doing that two years full time was, was essential for me. Now, I also appreciate the fact that there's a massive amount of apprenticeships out there. And, you know, my nephew's on an apprenticeship and that's working for him. And that's that's been a, a great way to do it. But I also have another nephew that's a university and that's working for him. So, you know, there's a massive difference. We, you know, everybody has slightly different career choices and ways to get there in terms of the educational bit. But I think the academic bit at the front end 
isn't necessarily that driver for anybody. So if you're not academic, sort of doesn't really matter because yeah. as long as you make solid choices further down the line that are going to fit in with what you need to know in terms of those those knowledge buckets, sort of yeah. doesn't really matter whether you're academic or not. No, indeed. And equally, I think within that, you know, that half of the battle here is finding something that you're passionate about. And actually, the learning experience in whatever form that comes is way different when you're you're super passionate about it. You know, yeah. the, the the willingness to go and learn and the willingness to actually even read a book on the matter and and maybe sit some exams on it is it's way higher because you've just you're just way more engaged. You know, and I think that's that's not that I'm you know I'm not the answer to the education system in any way, shape, or form. But you know, we do ask a lot of kids to make calls when perhaps they're not engaging with subjects that that they just you know they just don't get or have any desire to go into absolutely and yeah. i think the, the other bit of it when i was at college we were expected to do work experience during the during the summer holidays so we had to do six weeks and we had a lovely hotel in st albans st michael's manor and it's beautiful still there thank goodness and uh i did six weeks there i did three weeks in the kitchen and three weeks in the restaurant and um yeah, that was my first moment of shame, which I'm going to confess to right. um, for you. So this was the mayonnaise disaster, unfortunately. This, um, the famous <laughs> mayonnaise disaster. Uh, I, I think it, um, it just alludes to the fact that when you are having your first job or worse, you're in your work experience period, it's most important to make sure that somebody is actually being responsible for you at that age. And I learned the hard way. The um, the gentleman who had left me to do the mayonnaise for the afternoon shift. So I was on a, I was actually on a split shift, um, although they had me working in the afternoon. So whatever that is, I think that's a full day shift, but never mind. They call um, that an, a- an AFD, don't they? Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I had been tasked with making mayonnaise for that evening, uh, for that evening service. And I was told it was a 60 egg mayonnaise. So I dutifully got on making my 60 egg mayonnaise in my big Hobart mixer. And um, I had very specific instructions and I knew how to make mayonnaise. I, you know, we had done it as <laughs> basic 101. And I was about um, three quarters of the way in. And um, I started to notice that it wasn't looking like it should. And so I was starting to wonder about, hmm, I'm not sure I should continue on with this. And of course, there's nobody in in the afternoon shift. There is, there's nobody to ask. That we didn't have mobiles. I couldn't text, you know, the head chef and say, "Yeah, excuse me, something's going wrong." Here's a picture of what I've produced so far. Yeah, exactly. And he, you know, I was reporting into um, the um, the chef de party on starters at that point, and I didn't think I could disturb him because he was he was one of those people that really didn't like to be disturbed if he wasn't in the kitchen. So I was very, very, very clear that I should not be disturbing, you know, unless, you know, somebody died. And I guessed that, um, you know, 60 egg mayonnaise going West probably wasn't equivalent to somebody passing away. So I didn't disturb them. So I got to the point where I seriously realized that my 56 egg mayonnaise had separated and I really, really had no clue what to do with it. So I put it down the drain. And um, so that that was that really. And that was all fine until obviously the chef came in and I explained what had happened. And he just basically said, well, you should just have phoned me. Uh, We could have fixed it. um, And I'm going to show you how to fix it. He said, where is it? And I said, well, 
sort of down, down the drain. Okay. Which was fine until a couple of days later when I was not in the kitchen and um, apparently they had to have a plumber out because apparently if you put a lot of egg mix down the pipes, particularly in an old hotel, apparently that's not good for the, for the plumbing. Really? Um, I can't see why. Blood. Yeah. I don't know quite why. Um, I thought I'd put enough oil in it to make sure it went down in a you know timely manner. But apparently it might have been the, the hot water that I put on, on the top of it to make sure it didn't sit in the sink too long. Ah. I think. Cooking the eggs. Uh, yeah, yeah, That's could fun. be. Could mm. be. So note, note to self, always ask before you get in the weeds. Yeah. And um, yeah, always ask before you get in the weeds because somebody will always have a rescue plan that you are not aware of at that point. Um, yeah. And that was my first learning. Well, I th- it also shows you that, like the importance of, from a leadership perspective, setting clear boundaries of what yes. is and isn't possible, right? And, and also maybe the first question you should ask on your first shift in any kitchen, in your first job, whatever, is... Under what circumstances am I allowed to call you? Um, yes, exactly. uh, does does uh, splitting the mayonnaise constitute, uh, you know, a, a, a good enough reason to to call? Yes. But but there we are. You live and learn. <laughs> you do, yes. And I I always sadly every time I do make mayonnaise, I always sadly have to. It's like post traumatic stress. I always have that feeling of I'm not sure I can do this. I'm not sure I can do this. You know, somebody else will come and yeah, just take a breath. It's just mayonnaise. It's all fine. I'm just buying this stuff in. There's really good commercially produced stuff. I'm not making it from scratch anymore because it's too stressful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, how did it progress from there? You you survived said egg incident, uh, egg yes. gate. Shall we call it egg yes, gate or meal gate? Uh, it was probably plumber gate actually. Right. Okay. Because I didn't. Yeah, I wasn't there to see the results, so that was all fine. Um. Yeah. So yeah. So I. I then. Um. When I. When I progressed on from college, I then went to work for my very first hotel, and I was down at the Swan at Streetly, which is a beautiful, beautiful property, four star property on the river. Um. I was the only girl in the kitchen. Uh. Absolutely loved it. I ran the pastry for them. And I did, yeah, it was just pie, it was just pastry. And so there were about six of us in the kitchen, had a great head chef, uh, a guy called Kevin. He was amazing. And he actually let me work through the, the sections um, with some support and some help, which was exactly what I needed first job out of college. He wasn't mm. under any illusion about what I could and couldn't do. And, you know, if I was having a meltdown in the pastry over fondant fences and not getting my fondant at the right temperature so it would set, he, he could, <laughs> that was the next problem. He could actually, you know, put somebody in to help me. Whereas, because you didn't have Google, you couldn't go chat GP. Can you please set, help me with why fondant doesn't set? You know, this was prior to all this. And it doesn't tell you in a lot of the books why your fondant is not setting. Doesn't no, it tell only you shows you success, it. doesn't it? It doesn't yes, show exactly. you what happens it's if it's going south. Like, yes, yeah. not, uh, if it's not, what you need to do. So lots of learnings there. But I had a, a, the most amazing time. Um, they let me, they also let me um, buy cheese for the hotel. So there was, um, I had lots of experience on, on putting cheese trolleys together um, with a local cheese monger up in the village. So that was great. So that was a whole new section of responsibility, which is um, quite frightening now when you think back on it and you think how expensive cheese is. Um, and, and they just left, you know, um, an 18 But also how important it is. I mean, cheese is just... <laughs> I know. Everybody's vice. Crazy. I know. It was either that or it was just, it was such an expensive mistake if I got it wrong 
that they could get rid of me, I guess, if I if I did something, if I spent too much money on the cheese trolley. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that was good. And then I went from there after about a year and a half to um, a, a London hotel, which um, I'm not even sure it's still there, the London Forum on the Cromwell Road. Um, and it was the biggest hotel. It had 26 stories at that point. It was the tallest hotel in London. And I... I went there with a view to working my way around all the sections in the main kitchen. There's a massive kitchen. So they had one executive chef and 40 sous chefs. And what I didn't realise at the time was that um, the person who employed me didn't tell me that the, 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 the expectation of every chef joining the business was that you started off in the staff restaurant, which was below pavement level, which was fine. Yeah. No problem. So you do, uh, you do. Um, I think it was eight weeks in the staff restaurant, and you basically learn to make custard and gravy from packet mixes because this is back in the you know early eighties. And so I had to learn how to read packet soup and packet custard and packet gravy and packet everything because that's what they fed the staff. However, what I didn't realise was that you needed to you needed to complete this um, baptism of um, torture before you were allowed into the main kitchen. And so so the plan was that I would I would do this. I would go through this rite of passage. But what I didn't realise at the time was that um, the, the kitchen was uh, very much the old style, hierarchical, frightening, yeah, brigade. Um, yep. And, yeah, and yeah. There, was, there was a lot of people up there. So I didn't realise that this, this existed. Um, I had no clue that I had a problem one morning. And so... I didn't have enough bacon for breakfast and I knew that there was probably going to be a riot if there wasn't sufficient bacon for all the staff. And so I thought, well, I, what I need to do is I need to ask one of the chefs up in the main kitchen. So I will, I'll, I'll go upstairs and I'll see what the, um, what the situation is, see if they've got any bacon I can borrow. Didn't think anything of it. Got the, I mean, got that seems perfectly reasonable. It seems perfectly reasonable. I had a reporting line. I knew not to overstep my boundary of, you know, reporting. I knew who I needed to go find. And so this particular sous chef wasn't in. There were, given the fact that there were 40 uh, on staff, I figured I could probably find one of them, but I couldn't find this particular gentleman. And so I thought, well, I'll just go and ask, I'll just go and ask the executive chef. So in my, in, in my in ignorance, I just wandered across the kitchen the vast kitchen, I mean, cavernous kitchen. And I, ha- I didn't really realise that everybody was watching me at the time. And I'm walking towards the head chef's office, which is up on a quite um, a large sort of podium. It's sort of raised up, almost a bit like the Star Trek Enterprise, you know, it's that sort of right. design. The bridge. Um, yes, like the bridge. Um, and so I wandered off, walked up the stairs, knocked on the door, went in, shut the door, didn't think of it. The, and the executive chef said to me, basically, what are you here for? And, and I sort of uttered the words, bacon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have enough bacon for breakfast and I'm not sure how to magic extra bacon, you know? <laughs> Thought you might better help me. Um, and so so it wasn't, didn't really go well uh, because he he categorically then told me in no uncertain terms that, Yes, he could help me, but he had no intention of doing so. And that was the job of one of his second sous chefs. Um, and I needed to go and find the person who should have helped me um, and that he would be talking to him later. So we both got new sets of ears um, and I got um, royally um, shouted at by 
several people going back across the kitchen in terms of the what were you thinking of, dear? Those mm. sort of phrases. <laughs> yes, so I learnt very quickly that the hierarchical necessity of a very large London kitchen back in the 80s was one not to be messed with and you had to play the game because yeah. there's no way I was ever, ever getting out that staff kitchen. I was there for life. And uh, I think it was crystallised with me when they maybe go and choose the kitchen porter for the day um, as well. So back in the day, you literally had to go up to the loading bay every morning and go and find the person that was going to basically wash your dishes all day. And you had to try. It was just the most awful, soul-destroying, just dreadful experience. And it was one of those things that you think, this place is not for me. Yeah, really? I, I was wondering at what point... Does this all of this kind of catch up with you a little bit? Because I think it's it's one thing to, you know, be ripped a new one, uh, as it were. Probably um, the vast majority of people have had that done to them at some point uh, through their career, rightly or wrongly, wrongly. And you can probably take one or two of them on the chin. But when it becomes part of the day to day, then it's just, you know, they're not running that place as it should be run. No. And it, it's sad because if you think if you look around now, I mean, there's the Unilever Fair Kitchens program. My goodness, we could have done with that, you know, back back there, mm. you know, and and sort of a, a treating managers and or teaching managers and teaching senior chefs about that leadership, that that mentoring, that support role, not just throwing a pot at you because you burnt the onions, you know. Yeah. I've had yeah. that too. I had pots thrown at me. You know, you do what you do. You just remember to step over them as they slide through your ankles. You know, it is what it is. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. We, step up our lip. There. Let's get back to work. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just remember to duck. You know. Yeah. So, so it's I, I I think you know the that particular hotel was not that uh, did not fit with me, and I think I managed. I think it was about six weeks. Um, remember my grandma saying to me, everybody is entitled to one career mistake. You've had yours, move on. Because right. it was, I, I need to leave. I can't do this. You know, just to cap it all, you know, when you think about life choices and does that fit with your environment? You know, I learned, I learned that was my first experience of learning what marijuana smelled like because my roommate who worked in housekeeping smelt um or she smoked marijuana during because of course we were on opposing shifts obviously mm. and and so you know we were always working at the opposite end of the day so she'd be off and i'd be trying to sleep or vice versa that was my and it, i think that was the crystallizing moment when i said i probably need to change i probably need to change where i am so um yes so that was that we moved on yes indeed so from there where what was the uh, the objective at that point then because you probably learned that massive kitchen environments are maybe not my forte I, th I think yes I think the um I realized I didn't have enough experience uh in the various kitchen sections traditional kitchen setup and so I then went and, and joined a number of other privately owned hotels at the home counties. You know, the last one I had was um, Great Foster's in Egham, which is absolutely beautiful. Oh, yeah. Um, and just stunning. So um, I started there and I am still in contact with some very good chefs who, are, who we used to work together. Just three, three girls. And we were the only three girls in the kitchen. And um, so one was an exceptional pastry chef. Um, and the other two of us 
worked in uh, pastry and larder and then on veg. So um, yes, and I, my mission at that point was to run the sauce section, which I was finally allowed to do eventually after a lot of work around sections. And basically I had to work, work my passage, if you like, um, yeah. you know, I had to prove beyond yeah. all reasonable doubt that I could stand on my own two feet and I wasn't going to faint on a Saturday night when you had 120 a la carte. So once yeah. I proved myself, I was, um, yeah, it was, it was good. I, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. But that's, that's actually, a, that's an important thing though, isn't it? Like just because you happen to perhaps maybe run a section well once mm-hmm. doesn't then mean that you've nailed it because there are exponential amount of stuff that can happen. The only thing that, that you can really do by, you know, doing more and more is just gain more experience yeah and yeah, and yeah. you know, to help you deal with the stuff that comes up yeah yeah definitely definitely uh, and so i i think for i event although i have i think i eventually realized that if at that point i wanted to go off and get married and have children i probably wouldn't be able to get back in to the kitchen at that level nobody would have me and so i realized at that at that point after a couple of years in various other kitchens in that area or that end end of the world i suppose i decided i should probably go off and look for somewhere that could put me through management training um and so i went to work for compass services as a chef manager um and they had a great reputation at that point for taking on people who had come out of traditional traditional roles i guess so you know the, the hotel and restaurant route and so I ran. Uh, I went and ran a travel company for them in in Ware initially, um, and I was a chef manager there. So that taught me about stock taking, taught me about menu management, taught me about um, staff, you know, managing staff because I had a little team of three. And then I moved on from there because I had a really good manager and really good boss. And she said, you know, after a year of doing that, you can probably run a, a, a larger unit. So I went as a assistant general manager to a, um, a unit in Hemelhedstead. So I ran that and we had a massive restaurant there. So we had 400 people. We had a director's dining room. Um, we had a wine list that needed to be updated once a quarter. So we had, we had a chef manager unit in Watford, but that was the first time I sort of came across proper contract catering and, and all the vagaries that go with it so when you've got different contracts and you've got whether it's you know cost plus or or a fixed cost and whether we had a contract for vending we had a contract for cleaning we had a contract for catering then we had a contract for remote um, services as well so there was a massive amount of work that all of a sudden it was like a whole new bag of things to learn uh, which was fantastic for me because this was a whole new area of stuff that I didn't know uh, which was amazing um, mm. I think one of the highlights as well was we actually did a royal visit. So we had a, so we had, um, you know, uh, the HRH people coming in. And so this visit was planned for probably about six months. So we had special security people on the roof. We had sniffer dogs around the building. We had all sorts of stuff. But when you look back on it and you think, wow, that was a, that was a really, really impressive time. And when I look back on some of the pictures now, I think that was truly, truly phenomenal what we did with what we had, because we had to do it all outside in a tent because we didn't have the ground space inside the building. So, yeah, so this was all in November as well. So there was a lot of work, but mm. it was there was so much learning. And I learned so many things um, about not only the business, but also sort of what I what I wanted to do next, I think. And it, it made me realize that actually 
whilst I had a big passion for the food bit, I didn't know anything about equipment. I really had this massive gap. So I'm, I actually went and, and looked for another job and I thought myself, hmm, I see a lot of these salespeople coming in to see me and try and sell me stuff. And they all seem to have a pretty cushy number. They seem to have a company car. They got weekends off. And that looks like a pretty good job to me. So I thought to myself, in the naivety of time, obviously, as we all do, that somebody else has got a little bit of greener grass than you have. Because I was working a lot of hours at that time. And I was doing a lot of evenings and weekends for events and things. And so I decided I'd apply for... Um, a, a position with Lockhart Catering Equipment. So again, they had a massive reputation at that point for doing really, really good in-house training, taking on chefs or caterers that wanted to learn sales and have a sales role. And that's what I did. So I, I joined them as a as a sales manager and they put me through uh, all the equipment training. So literally everything from a teaspoon to a complete kitchen and beyond and so i i joined them as a salesperson and had a region and had a company car which was the most exciting thing in the world <laughs> at that point i was the coolest girl on the block um except i wasn't because i was doing a lot of miles but i loved it absolutely loved it i had some amazing customers and it was it was literally everything from a teaspoon to a full kitchen so they were very hot on making sure that you knew all your products, working with all the big key equipment manufacturers. So the, you know, the Hobarts of the world, the Electrolux guys. Um, so all the big guys that are, you know, are really key to making big kitchens run and small kitchens, to be honest. Mm. Um, and so I absolutely loved it. So I had some fantastic customers um, and literally would do everything from a greenfield site and just getting kitchen designed putting the equipment in to doing new China for a restaurant or new China for uh, a director's dining room somewhere. Um, so I was very lucky and we had, we had a lot of fun and I, I had a great time and I was there for about five years in total. So yeah, fascinating, but, but great in terms of that training piece and that knowledge piece and, and being a sponge and, and never saying no to, to anything, I guess is probably what I, what I learned probably most from from that role yeah and probably the first foray into figuring out just how important the equipment side of things is yeah yes yes completely I mean you know I, everybody will will have a, a menu but actually the food comes first the beverage comes first but the equipment has to come second and you can't do it any other way because you it, otherwise it doesn't make sense mm. um, and you can spend a lot of money on very expensive equipment then find that it's wrong so yes it becomes an expensive mistake if you're not careful mm. so um, yes yeah, yeah. that was that five star hospitality means having the right people in the right place at the right time and that's exactly where rotacloud can help rotacloud is the online platform that makes planning rotors recording attendance and managing annual leave easy it's simple drag and drop interface lets you create and share rotors with your team in minutes while our built-in budgeting tools mean you'll know exactly how much you're spending on staffing before sending the rotor out. Rotacloud also makes life easier for your staff, allowing them to check their rotors, request time off, and pick up extra shifts, all through the Rotacloud mobile app. Start your 30-day free trial today by visiting rotacloud.com forward slash fill and find out how much easier managing your team can be. Yeah. So where did you head off next after five years with them? 
Yeah, so I, I joined, um, I, I had another little foray with um, another equipment company where I had probably um, two of my biggest project challenges, I guess. One, one company, we actually did a rebuild of the Titanic. Um, but of course. As you do. Yeah, I thought I, yeah. I thought that was what you were going to say. <laughs> this this particular company uh, down in Northwest London was um, very well known for its uh, big projects, and and I joined them because I had quite a lot of light equipment experience. Um, so the, the 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 tableware, the china, the cutlery, the glass, and they they were working with a particular consultant who was working on this project for a Japanese investment company and they were doing a rebuild, a life-size rebuild of the Titanic that was going to be floated in Hong Kong Harbour. And it was going to be a 100% replica perfect of the original. So my job was to basically go out and research everything I could find out about the original ship and then find companies, glass companies, China companies, silver com- silverware companies, flatware businesses, whatever I could find, who they could basically do a replica of the original cutlery China glassware. And it was it totaled up to be just over £1.1 million worth of tableware, basically. Yeah. It was absolutely staggering. And it, it never, never came to pass. It, it was so sad. The project literally got shelved at the ninth hour. Oh. Um, and yes, this would have been staggering. And uh, But it was such an amazing project to be to be a part of that it was, um, yeah, it was because it never, fl- because it never <laughs> made the light of day. Yeah. It, it, it just, but the research was there, the, the quotes were there, had all the prototypes made. Um, and some of this stuff was stunning, you know, that the level of detail that they had on their, silver grape scissors for first class you know and coming from a cruise background phil you will understand that level of detail yeah. at that level but this was first class with bells on yeah so it yeah, was yeah absolutely beautiful god what so, yes. pro- what's a project and that, this is one of the things that i love about the industry is that you yeah of course there are those of us who you know service the industry in terms of the jobs that we do but then there's also the visionaries right who who come up with new things and new ideas and new experiences and okay this one didn't quite make it to but you know make it to the shall we say that the project sunk um anyway that's probably the end of my career um and (laughs) but nevertheless to some for somebody to have this unbelievable vision in the first place to say that you know not even just to say like we're going to build a replica titanic and that's it no, 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 we're going to build a replica Titanic and everything that was on board it. Yes. Uh, it's quite remarkable. Yes, it is. And, and and it's very, very strange to me that nobody else has actually taken that up since. I mean, this is sort of 20 plus years ago. Mm. Well, anyway, we did the work We and we, we, were, we, were, we were about oh, to we get... We learned a lot through that as well, through doing the work. Oh, my goodness, yes, yeah. And it, I think, interestingly enough, I think that really sort of led on to to my next role with um, with Grat Brothers um, Catering in in Nebworth because I I really did. Unfortunately, the, the that prior company didn't really get on with the management team. They were in a different, should we say, different headspace to me, I guess. And 
So I really, really wanted out once I'd done this particular project. So I actually moved to Grat Brothers and that I, I moved to them solely and 100% because I wanted to learn about project management and I realised I had a massive gap. So I, I could go in and do a lot of table stuff. I could go in and do basic kitchen design. But I had been to so many kitchens and listened to so many chefs. And the first thing they would say to me was, well, I don't know who designed it, but they were never going to work in it. And, and end of end of conversation. Right. And so I yeah. wanted to be that person that had that chef experience, that had that equipment experience, that had the kitchen knowledge, that had the operations knowledge, that I could actually go in and design a kitchen that actually would stand up and would work and would operationally be solid. Then nobody would have to go in and go, well, I don't know design, but they were never going to have to work in it because it doesn't make any sense. Mm. And so we, I think we were at the, definitely um, the front end of that design piece and, and doing an awful lot of work around trying to make kitchens not only sustainable and green, but also replicable replicable for some of the, the chain accounts. So I was looking after people like Whitbread, but I was doing it with, with the support of one of their senior project managers called Charlie, and he was absolutely fabulous. And he was one of those people that just downloaded all of his brain in one go and then I had to pick out the bits that were relevant to me. But I had my own high-vis jacket. I had my own safety shoes. And I had my own hard hat because I could then go onto site and I could then go and sit and talk to builders and architects. But up to that point, I had no clue. So the whole point of going to join them, and they were fantastic at coaching me and mentoring me through all the little projects I had with them, was that they, did, they knew I didn't know it. They knew I was a chef in a high-vis jacket. But it didn't matter because they coached me through it and they mentored me through mm. all the problems that I created for myself. But it also helped me in terms of it gave me the ability to be able to read a plan, read a kitchen plan, read a, build a, basically an architect's plan, but also then sit with people like general contractors and say, OK, why is the finished floor level different to what's actually in the building? Why have you put the electrical sockets three feet along they should be five foot off the floor because we've got drainage to put in so those sort of operational things that up to that point I didn't know anything about and I had no experience I couldn't talk to you about heating ventilation and extraction and air conditioning no no clue but by the time I'd finished a couple of years with them I absolutely knew what I was talking about as much as I could at that point because I certainly was not the expert but I had enough knowledge that I had some amazing uh, projects to do we did the Dorchester kitchens in London their banqueting wow, nice. kitchens yeah uh, we did yeah overnight projects um with them um just beautiful beautiful kitchens working with some amazing chefs um I did the RAC club in Pall Mall we did that as an overnight but again the, the kitchens are uh, below pavement level and so actually craning things in and then getting them into the building pushing fridges up flights of stairs at yeah. three o'clock in the morning old buildings as well press the artwork whilst you go that sort of thing yeah. yeah but I had a I had I was so lucky I had an amazing team that I worked with and we just all pulled together to make sure you delivered the project with bells on and made sure when the client came in at eight o'clock that morning everything was fabulous yeah and we could get to hand the kitchen back so so lots of learnings and and I was very very lucky and absolutely loved it yeah, and uh, well, I, I think the key thing there as well is that you highlight just how important it is to have a good team around you, right? Because you, there's no way in the world you can pull these things off on your own. 
you know, it's it's got it's got to be a cohesion, and it's got to be everybody pulling together. And okay, we might have to to do an all nighter here to get this done, but but we're in it together, and we're we're going to have each other's back. Yes, definitely, definitely. And and I think the other the, the other bit is recognizing when you don't know something. Mm. And I, I I yeah, I'm, I I I think I learned very quickly to stick my hand up quick. You know, if something doesn't look right. Then, then you need to ask very, very quickly because when you're doing a project and and people are hot welding things on site, that can go wrong really fast if, if you don't spot 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 a problem or you don't know why somebody's doing something. Um, it, it's always a lot safer to ask ahead of time than wait for the client to say, why is that bit of metal sticking out there? Why yeah. is that not beautifully, you know, mirror glass smooth? Why do you have the taps on the wrong way round? You know? <laughs> The little things that really upset people, yeah. rightly so. No, indeed, absolutely. And having that cohesion with the external teams who don't have yeah. any kitchen experience and don't, you know, they're just there to do their job, right? Um, but, yeah. yeah, being able to liaise with them, I'd mas- I imagine, is massively important as part of that delivery. Yeah, definitely. Just to, And everybody having confidence in everybody else as well, I think, you know, that has a massive, massive difference. Um, yeah. So I, I guess really from there, I went on to uh, my first big role, I suppose, with with Mary Chef. And I was I was looking to try and I suppose um, well, they were looking for people to come and join them who had a chef experience, but also had a background in in sales. And so they were a privately held business at the time. Um, so they were the first company really that launched speed cooking in this con- in this country. So the Mary's Chef Oven's now widely seen across the estate. So, you know, Marks and Spencer's have them, Tesco's have them, uh, Waitrose have them, Whitbread have them. You know, there's there's a massive amount. In fact, I think there's probably about 1.5 million installed now in terms of speed cooking. So speed cooking was really, really at the forefront of technology at that point. And it, it was really interesting to me from a chef's perspective as to what you could do with it and try and break down some of those barriers. So they took me on, bless them, Graham, uh, my, my my original managing director and forever friend and mentor through the rest of my career, um, took me on as part of the pubs and leisure team. So I went back to looking after people like Whitbread and Scottish and Newcastle, and then some of the more local breweries like McMullen's. So everything from menu development to commercial discussions about service issues or getting all the staff trained within a particular estate so literally everything from soup to nuts for that customer whether that was you know a a whitbread account you know with several hundred restaurants across the estate or whether it was a small regional brewer like SA Brains down in Wales so we literally did everything for that customer which was great because it gave you a lot of consistency and and it also meant that there was one face for for them as well so they only had to pick up the phone to one person if there was an issue or there was one person to help if they wanted to get a menu development um, session done so yes they traveled a massive amount with uh, with the business i absolutely loved it loved my job and was very very grateful because it was um it really was at the time it was it was very groundbreaking and there really weren't many of us doing it and then I think about five years in, I guess, <clears throat> I think we were, we got, we got taken up or so we got, we got bought out by a company called Enodis. And at that point, um, the landscape started to change a little bit. And there was a new sheriff in town called Dean Landesh, who was the VP of marketing. 
And he came over and he must have seen one of my demonstrations or one of my presentations, customer presentations. He came out with me for the day, I, I remember. And not long after that, he asked if I might be interested um, in moving to the US to run the US operation. Um, and I said, no, thanks very much. Love what I'm doing. Like going to Wales. Love my customers. What are you thinking? And he said, well, we are based in Tampa, Florida. Let me just come back to you. Hold on a minute. Just, just think, let me take a breath. Um, and to be honest, um, it, it took about, probably took about a year for, for everything to sort of come to pass. And it was, it was as, you know, with most big companies, you know, small company gets absorbed into big company. Big company goes, oh, need to have a bit of a reorganization. So in a sort of a couple of reorganizations. And I, I sort of realized, I think that if I stayed in the UK, actually, it would probably be more of a problem for the for the UK business if I stayed because I'd been trying to do some launch the, the, the Merry Chef brand in the US while still managing all of my UK accounts. So I've been traveling backwards and forwards between the US and the UK for about three years at this point on a regular basis, which was getting to be a little bit stressful in terms of that sort of time management and the and the jet lag um and also just trying to manage customers both sides of the atlantic with the time difference yeah but i think i'd appreciated at that point that there was a massive opportunity in the us there was a massive amount of fabulous people who who really you could go and show this technology to um and so when they came back with a with an offer to say you know, what about moving to Tampa as uh, and taking on the role of running the kitchen? We don't have anything and we don't have anybody um, in, in the kitchen at the moment. The lady who's over there is nearly 70 and she quite liked to retire. Um, and she was a dietitian and she had managed the kitchen over there for a really long time. But it was very much an engineering led facility. So lots of dusty equipment and um, no customer visits, basically. So my boss, uh, Dean, at that point, and, and Graham, basically, we put our heads together and they said, look, you know, um, this is what we could probably put together for you, but we need you to relocate. So I said, well, I just got engaged and um, I'm about to be married. So um, can, can you wait until after I've got married? Will that be OK? Because that'll be about eight months because I'm not moving the wedding. So I went home and said to my poor, long suffering then to be husband, Shall, should we move to Tampa? Um, and he said, yes, okay. Yes, all right up. then, go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, poor thing. So he gave up his job in uh, corporate treasury in London and um, he allowed, basically to allow me to follow my career plan at that point. And that's a big ask when you're not even married. Yeah. Um, that's that, I, I don't know. Maybe it, it appealed to the, that sense of adventure, you know. It, it's I, and equally from the job perspective, something completely new for you as yeah. well. Somebody has seen something in you and said, "We need yeah. this lady to do that." And maybe at the time you hadn't even seen in yourself that that would be something that would be on on your radar. But it's just the joy, one of the joys of the industry, isn't it? I mean, it's just this this opportunity that. It's so maybe left field and so out of your comfort zone, but nevertheless still has a lot of interesting things about it. Just falls yes. on your lap and yes. a decision has to be made. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he said, well, my boss said, listen, we, we don't have a job title. Um, you need to write your job description pretty much on, on, on the plane, um, which is basically what I did. And and therefore we, we moved in. We got married in October 2005 and then we moved at uh, the end of November. So six weeks after we got married, we moved. Right. Lock, stock and barrel. And yeah. Um, yeah, I would never, ever, ever advise anybody to do that ever, ever and never do that ever again. Because it's quite stressful. You have to plan a wedding based on a pile of post-it notes and what you can fit in on your trips back home. Mm. So it gets quite, yes, it gets it gets quite, quite stressful. However, it was done and we had a massive event. The first, literally, we got off the plane and the following week we had a massive event for McDonald's. Um, and my, my poor husband, literally, his first job, um, I had to have him get up uh, we had a we had um we had a diesel truck pulled up around the back of the building and um his first job in the dark was to get up a pair of steps with a torch and make sure we weren't going to run out of diesel fuel overnight because otherwise i would have a dual temperature truck with fridge and freezer full of food for the following week and it would be defrosted and i and so that was his first job and i remember him saying to me is this the reason we moved to tampa and i said eh. Could be, could mm. be. I'm sure there'll be better things on the horizon. And there were. So it yeah. was all fine. Absolutely. So you were there for quite a long time. Nine years. Yeah. 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 So yeah. it was clearly the right move. Yes, for, it was. For you uh, yeah. at that time. There's something happened in 2012, which just blew my mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, there was. So as, as, part of the, um, as part of the culinary team that we set up, we as a, as a business, as uh, Inodis and Wellbuilt, which was the next iteration, we had sponsored the Boku Store competition uh, since its inception, so 20 plus years. Um, and in 2012, we had a competition that was for the US Heats in Orlando for the US team. Um, and we were had all the kitchens um, that we had put together for with with full full equipment that we had provided free of charge obviously one of the main or main contributors was the Bacuse team and Paul Bacuse in in particular and obviously his son who runs a a restaurant over there and this was also the year that Disney had released Ratatouille the film and we had basically been instructed that at the end of the competitions so you have to imagine this there are six kitchens set up in uh, part of Epcot and there are chefs all over the place. Disney has the, the theory that if in doubt, throw people at it. So right. we, had, yep. we, had, we had probably 150 chefs, some of which running around on on um on the um oh what do you call them the the balancing oh it doesn't matter like the things on two wheels that get you from a to b yes because they have massive um environment to sort of look after anyway so behind the scenes we had all these kitchens and as support backup staff um and and the rest of the culinary team we were told that we had to line up behind the back of the kitchens literally side by side and the um, there were some um, curtains that they were going to open halfway along. So between kitchens, sort of three and four, the cur- curtains, these purple curtains were going to open. And Paul Bacuse was then going to walk down in front of all the, the staff behind us. He was then going to turn left, 
and amongst an awful lot of dry ice and smoke and hullabaloo music, as Disney is inclined to do, um, he was then going to walk down this small walkway and the curtains were going to open and he was going to come front centre in front of this massive audience of about 800 to 1,000 people. So all of these people were expecting it. We were briefed, fully briefed. And so we all lined up. Paul Bacuse came down shaking everybody's hands. And unfortunately, either he hadn't been told or he hadn't decided that he was going to do his own thing because it was his damn competition, quite frankly. I don't know. He got to me because I was just about at the entrance uh, point where he needed to turn left. Curtains would open and music would blast. However, he decided he wasn't going to do that. He was going to carry on down the line, shaking people's hands, got to the end. And instead of there being a, uh, a Paul Wakus moment, there was a Ratatouille moment because they had to open the curtains. The dry ice kicked off. The music kicked off. Paul Bacuse was nowhere in, in sight, but there was just an eight foot purple rat in place. Of course there was. And then Paul Bacuse happily popped out at the other end of the curtains way down 15 feet further along the, the chef's line. And it was it was a moment of pure bliss and hilarity, except we couldn't laugh because it was, you know, it was a seminal moment meeting Chef Paul Bacuse. <clears throat> and I cherish the picture that I have with him as as part of the, the whole experience. And, you know, you, you can't you can't pay for that. It's no. just it's just absolutely amazing and he's thinking um i i am what kind of imbeciles am i working with here yes yes and i have an eight foot you know purple rat in, yeah. in my place but dip, poor dip the poor people from disney they were so they were so stressed about it but they they smiled extra dry ice extra big music and and yeah, we all few extra people we all clapped the rat we all clapped the rat and yeah and that's, well that, that, i think the thing is that the audience probably wouldn't know any different, really. Maybe they'd just be going, well, this is a bit weird, but okay, yes. I'll go with it. Yes. Yes, because it got the full Disney treatment no matter what. Yeah. So you really didn't know what had happened at that point. And it was yeah. only us along the back line that realised that actually he should have gone that way and he's actually gone that way. That's probably not what's supposed to happen. Yeah. So, yes. Yes. I always find that uh, Disney is so understated with things, aren't they, really? Yes. No flamboyance in any way, shape, or form. But um, you also have, um, you wrote down on your notes, um, and I don't know if this coincides with this role or, or with another role, but uh, trips to Johannesburg and to Kuala Lumpur. Yes, I did. Yes. I don't know which is, well, probably the Kuala Lumpur one, because that's particularly interesting from a, just just from a self-learning perspective, I guess. Yeah. So uh, we as part of my role, obviously, I had a, an amazing team in Tampa and we, we built it up so that we had, I actually had 10 kitchens globally and about 50 chefs, um, not all directly reporting to me. But, you know, I'm so lucky that I am, I can still, you know, pick up the phone or email any one of them. But at the time we were actually doing some work in Shanghai and then I went on to the kitchen in Singapore and I was doing some work with the guys down there. And as part of the visit, um, one of the things that I said to them was about going to see a, a really successful client installation and, and seeing what you've done in terms of the, the oven um, installation. So the chef had actually worked really hard with this uh, massive golf resort in Kuala Lumpur. So the plan was I'd flown into Singapore and we were getting a minibus from, from Singapore up to Kuala Lumpur. 
So the day that we were scheduled to go, we were also scheduled to see a customer en route before we actually got to this golf resort. And we knew it was about five hours in the minibus. So myself and two of the other chefs and then uh, and then one of the sales guys. And it was it was all fine. It was all going well. We stopped at the services. It was absolutely pouring with rain. And I had always said to the, I'd always said the guy to, to the guys, listen, you never quite know who you're going to meet. So when you travel, do two things. Always make sure you travel in appropriate clothing. Never, ever, ever pack your chef's jacket in your check bag. Make sure you can't put it in your carry on because it's the one thing you can't buy if you get there and your luggage has gone missing. So you always take a chef jacket with you, no matter what. But you always, most importantly, make sure that you have appropriate clothing and your shoes are appropriate for where you're going. Right. So take my own advice, please. OK, so I am wearing appropriate trousers, appropriate boots, ankle boots, which I used to travel in. So I was great. No problem. However, what I didn't realise was that the, the services that we stopped at um, were outdoor services. I didn't realise also that the line for the ladies was outside. And there was also this terrible, terrible, terrible smell, obviously from being outside in uh, rainy season and not not the best in terms of sort of hygienic opportunities, I would say. So um, I had to gen just then figure out where I needed to go. And I appreciate that I needed to sort of get a move on because the, the, the bus was waiting. But you need to go, you need to go. And, you know, you're halfway in. And so I joined the line that I thought was the right line for the ladies. And it was. However, I joined the line that had no toilet paper. I didn't realise I needed to take my own toilet paper. First mistake. Goodness. Second mistake. Didn't realise I was also in the line for the, the squatting toilet rather than the regular toilet. So now, OK, I'll just leave it to your imagination. Not only am I wearing the wrong trousers, I'm wearing the wrong boots. I have a I have a business handbag with me so I'm now trying to balance like so thinking this is probably not going to work so you have to concede defeat at some point and learning for me I remember coming out texting my husband going please get me out of here I, I'm not doing a squatting toilet again it's not happening and if when I get to the other end there's a squatting toilet at our hotel I might cry and go home yeah <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it's all right for you guys, because you guys will be all fine. Well, but for the ladies, you it's say a that, learning. but it depends what's going on. Because <laughs> uh, let me tell you, there's a story uh, I have in a similar circumstance. And this was actually, bless them, this was, a, this was in Odessa in Ukraine. And yeah, I, regrettably, I didn't know it at the time, but I was about to get uh, norovirus. And yeah, on this ship, that's a pretty... I mean, anywhere, it's not very nice, yeah. but um, yeah, I, but yeah, I, I managed to get norovirus whilst ashore in Odessa, and the only option was a squatting toilet. So yeah, anyway, this has gone downhill quite quickly, hasn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say, you brought it up, okay? I did, I did, you right. give you options. Yes, indeed, <laughs> absolutely. No, that's great. Well, I mean, talk to us about the role in terms of how that evolved because I, when I was reading your notes and some of the things that maybe a lot of us don't even contemplate are, you know, how long it actually takes to sometimes get the thing that you now love and enjoy to that position in the first place. Yeah. So, so I think one of the things that has really struck me about the role I've done is that we've, we've, 
there is a development process that nobody ever knows about. So I'll, I'll give you a live example. So are uh, you allowed to tell us? Yes, I can because okay, it's in the public domain. We're not, Don't we're, worry. Yeah, we're not going to. Um, so, there'll uh, be a lawsuit coming from McDonald's. No, in a no, 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 no. Because uh, everybody, I am sure, who is listening to this, no matter where they are in the world, has had a McDonald's smoothie and frappe sometime in the last ten years. So before they were actually launched, we did about four years worth of development to get to the point where not only did we have the recipe 100% locked in, but the piece of equipment that McDonald's were going to buy, which was our blended ice machine, um, was actually set up for success. So it didn't matter which McDonald's had this piece of equipment in the world. When you have 18,000 restaurants, you cannot afford to get that wrong. You can't afford to get the equipment wrong. You can't afford to get the recipes wrong. And so you have to work hand in glove with all food suppliers. So all these big global guys so would come into Tampa and as part of the development process, we would work with McDonald's as the client, us as the equipment supplier, and then we would have all of the um, ingredients guys who would be supplying you know, the, the, the dairy or the cream or the ice cream base or the flavours or the strawberry banana base, or whatever it was, to make the original, or to make all of the smoothies and frappes. But there is a particular way that you have to set these pieces of equipment up. And that can change dependent on where you are in the world, and your ice can change dependent on where you are in the world. And one of the learnings that I had was um, we had actually just, we were just about to put the machines into, into the Hong Kong market. And I'd come back, um, my husband and I had come back for, for a two weeks holiday and I'd been watching an email trail of, of, of a little bit of panic starting to go on because we were having issues in the market and we were struggling trying to get the, the blend profile right and the taste profile right. So if I sort of frame that up by saying before you can actually launch a product, you have to go through a massive amount of not only consumer testing, but sensory testing. So when you taste a drink, how does it taste? Does it taste like strawberry banana? Is it, does it taste balanced? Do you get a lot of ice bite when you, when you actually have the drink? So doing an awful lot of work on sensory and training the chefs in sensory was also part of my role. But actually having that drink blend profile correct 100% of the time is incredibly difficult. It's from an engineering standpoint and an innovation standpoint, it's incredibly difficult to replicate. But what I realized when I was reading, um, you know, this email disaster unfolding was that we actually had probably a problem with the dairy element. So ultimately, what I ended up doing was getting on, on a plane from the UK to Singapore and spending, no, sorry, not Singapore, Hong Kong, and spending a week basically trying to sort out what the problem was. And it ended up that it wasn't anything to do with the equipment. It was just the fact that we had a different uh, yogurt and their yogurt came from the Hong Kong dairy. And it was completely different to anything we have in the UK or the US. Yeah. And so the, the the content of that one item then completely messed up what we had to then reset everything. Um, and I knew I had three days in which to do it because I then had to fly back to the UK and then fly back to Tampa. But just just one little thing that you don't really have an appreciation for at that time makes you realize that actually, number one, I had to figure it out on my own because you have no other support locally. Um, and the customer is just waiting for you to figure it out. And so you've got to figure it out yourself. And so at that point, you 
pull on every last fiber of of resource reasoning you know uh, every conceivable person you know in the world that might be able to help you with it and yes and you have to solve it and you have a fixed amount of time mm. so try to sort of go go behind all that sort of stuff and, and and people appreciating actually there's a massive amount of work that goes on around equipment innovation and i was lucky enough you know to to work really the, the crucible of that equipment innovation in in tampa for for many many years and do some incredible projects with them and work with some incredible chefs and incredible customers as well. But yes, there's a massive amount that goes into it. So whether that's sensory training for all the chefs or whether that is, you know, working with other culinary schools locally so that we can train the chefs for tomorrow um, and show them about equipment innovation and, you know, where it's going for the future, because nobody has spare staff these days. So every piece of equipment that you put into your kitchen had better be solving you money uh, or, or saving you labor or making you money mm. uh, because if it's not, you shouldn't be having it. Yeah. So. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Wow. I mean, yeah. I, and I suppose we've only just scratched the surface, I would imagine, of the kind of stuff that you, you had to unravel and uncover and, and, and get involved with. And you were there for nine years, yes. you said. Yeah. So we haven't completed your story yet. It's only it's only about four o'clock in the morning, so we're all right yet. Um, but um, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. So well, there for nine years. Uh, yes. What happened next? How? Yeah. How did uh, how did it move forward from there? So yeah, nine years in, um, we we needed to move back for my sister was very poorly, um, and so we moved back for, for family reasons. But I think the uh, the other reason was that it gave us an opportunity to be able to reorg the team. So my boss was 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 fantastic. We took about 18 months to get the relocation back to, to the UK. Um, and that allowed us really, um, made, allowed me to recruit my replacement to, to head up the Tampa team. But it also gave us the opportunity to, to grow the team. And I'm very much a, I'm a fan of employing people smarter than you to do your job. Um, that have different skills and you know you've seen sparkly cvs and i've seen sparkly cvs when it comes down to it you have to be able to cook you have to be able to bring something excuse me to the party um other than what it says on your cv and so i would much rather hire for a fit to the team than your functionality necessarily because i can i can teach you the equipment stuff i can teach you the specs i can teach you the, the the how to do it but your what you bring to the party and what you bring as a team member was was more important to me so actually you know the 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 gentleman i um i employed to replace me brings a whole new set of skills that i didn't have which from the team dynamics and actually growing that expertise is a much much more um sustainable way to grow the team and and also um, hold on to the staff that you've got and the team mm. that you've got and you know I'm lucky we lost nobody in the time that I was there and I'd like to think it was because you know we did some innovative ways of actually training everybody um, and supporting everybody and just making sure everybody had a, a crack of all the fun stuff as well as you know the hard work you know because it you, you know goes one with one does tend to go with the other so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah so you you move back to the UK yes and what 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 did you take up next? So, so I had a I had a couple of inter- interesting things come up. Um, so I decided that after three years I would make my own business a, a thing, 
uh, because my role got made redundant. Um, and so I decided that I would start my own business, which I've now been doing for a number of years. And in between that, um, I've also had a couple of other roles. I've, I've done a six month contract with uh, the lovely KFC and amazing people over there. So I did a six month um, secondment with them doing some project management stuff. Um, so that again was a whole new basket of interesting and just some stuff I have never done before. Um, I literally completely blank sheet of paper uh, and, and a lot of time spent on Google looking things up, but learned a lot of stuff and, you know, huge respect to everybody over there because they've got a massive job on them. And then I also did some work with uh, Redefine Meat last year. So a big plant-based company who are looking to offer an alternative to uh, meat-based options on the menu. And I suppose from a chef's perspective, it was so fascinating to actually have the opportunity to, to go and look at and talk about and cook with plant-based alternatives because I've not done anything like that before. So learning about sort of plant-based ingredients and learning about how you cook it differently, how you present it differently on your menu, you know, what's your GP margins, you know, what else can it do for, from the chef's perspective, you know, you can't, can't always put on a new thing on the menu and expect it to be you know be the solution to, to everything mm. but actually different ways to present things um sometimes give you a different answer to the question you thought you had in the first place so that was you know a great year with them last year and then this year i've just been really been doing my own business so packaging solutions food menu development and really sort of working with the craft guild so yeah I mean, it sounds like you have you bring an awful lot of different skills to the table based around the fact that, I mean, certainly from that first moment where you took the step away from being you know, in the kitchen day to day and into that sales role, mm. from then on, it just feels like you've had roles whereby they've always tested you in some way. And I mean that in a positive way. I don't mean this is, so, this is a test, but, you know, something you're learning all the time and 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 effectively what that comes down to is, is your desire and capability i suppose to solve problems and it's you know the problem of oh we're, we're just we're going to launch this product in singapore and they're or sorry hong kong it was wasn't it um yeah. and their yogurt is not the same as the yogurt that we've been using so effectively we've got to make a brand new product that took us four years before but we've got to do this in three days Yes. Um, you know, so and that's your your ability and willingness to, I suppose, in some instances, you you know, there's there's not much choice. You can't turn around to a client and go, well, that's not going to work. Goodbye. Um, yes. But um, but at the same time, there ha there has to be a willing a willingness to go right. Well, this is here's the problem in front of us. Let's pull together and yes. fix that. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's. Um... And I suppose maybe that's one of the reasons I, I enjoy the consulting bit quite so much because it's sort of it, most of the questions I get asked are luckily around what I've done before. Thank goodness. So, yeah. um, and if it's not, I'll usually find somebody who knows the question, who knows the answer to the question. Mm. So yes, it's been it's been really really enlightening. I think, and that's why I think I'm enjoying doing the consulting role now because it does at least pull together a lot of the stuff that I've done prior to including the packaging piece. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's been fascinating. Yeah, um, got, really fascinating. I mean, I, I, I do feel like I could talk to you for hours, but regrettably, I can't really do that on uh, on this show. Uh, well, I mean, there's no reason why I, I couldn't, but um, 
nevertheless, people would be bored by this point, Phil. Certainly by me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 just a, I've, I, it, it highlights again how diverse the opportunity is in in hospitality, and and maybe there's elements to it that you hadn't even considered, and I certainly hadn't considered this before you reached out to me as being such a monumental part of it, you know, and it's really, really fascinating. So if people want to learn about you, reach out to you, retain your services, what's the best yep. method for them to, to do that? Absolutely, yes. I'm on LinkedIn, um, as, as everybody is, and I've also got a website. And so either of those will work. And I'm, I, mean, I wouldn't say I'm massive on um, Instagram or anything like that. I tend to follow the Craft Guild chefs on there but um because i do some do some stuff with them as well but yes just linkedin is probably a, as good a portal as any yeah 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 yeah, absolutely well i'll put the links on in the show notes uh, for both of those things and yeah thank you for giving up your time especially on the back you've not been well this week so i appreciate you making the time to to do so and yeah what a what a cracking fascinating story you have Thank you so much. It's been absolutely amazing. And I'm very humbled to be asked and included on your roster of glitterati and illumini that you've had in the in the last three years. It's been amazing. So thank you for including me. Bless, Bless you. That's very, very kind. Have a lovely evening ahead. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. And there we have it. What a colourful and varied journey Alison has, which also showcases an area of the industry we've not really explored on the podcast, around food and equipment development and the key role they play in the industry. We'll be back as usual at 8pm next Wednesday for another story from hospitality. So until then, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.